Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. You haven't listened to Lupe Fiasco's new record, Drogas Wave? What are you doing? It's an incredible record. It is a conceptual album based off a story of a group of slaves that jumped off of a slave ship transporting them from Africa. But the slaves did not drown. Instead, they managed to live under the sea, and they spent the rest of their underwater lives sinking those very slave ships. This double album is one of his most philosophically artistic projects to date, laced with intricate production and his classic wordplay. No joke, this record is the real deal. I love Lupe Fiasco, and this thing, it's thick, but man, it is so damn good. Listen to it. It is available everywhere now. Drogas Wave. Do it up! What's up, everybody? How are you? I'm Ray Harkins. We're hanging out on 100 Words or Less, the podcast. But more specifically, we are talking about specifics. This is a special series, and this is episode two of that special series called Be Specific. And I have a doozy for you today. Like, just to set this up appropriately for those of you who did not listen to the first episode, which is totally fine. It's not like some serialized podcast. But, uh, I've always had this vision to uh, talk to people about the you know business side of music, but you know get get really into the weeds and not just talk about like oh yeah you know this this one time this band was signed and did this thing or whatever. It's like how much did you sign the band for? Like how many records did you sign them for? And not because I'm trying to like air dirty laundry or create any drama. This is basically just to use these numbers as illustrations because, you know, I think a lot of the times, and I was the same way before I started to work in the music industry, I had no concept of a lot of these things. And when I started to experience like what it was like to actually, you know, sign bands or get paid for shows or whatever, then it, then and only then was I able to actually like march forward with more either confidence, uh, knowledge about the stuff. And uh, yeah, I just feel like, the, you know, we can peel back the curtain a little bit more and get specific. But people are sometimes afraid about talking numbers and stuff like that. And, you know, I get it. It's um, it's a touchy subject. But uh, I, I think that there's some there's there's some worth out of it. So anyways, that was my that's my vision. And that's what we're doing and pursuing all of this month. And, uh, the first episode could not have gone better. Like it was, uh, it's frankly one of the most popular episodes that I have released probably in the past two years. And uh, I really appreciate for those of you that, uh, downloaded on a regular basis and like this kind of change of content. But then I also appreciate those who, uh, you know, spread it around and shared it with their uh, friends and other friends and family and whatever else. But Anyways, the guest this week is a very, very good friend of mine and, uh, you know, not really a public person. So for him to agree to do this, I felt uh, honored and privileged and, you know, whatever you want to say. But I I just I I like it when friends trust me to take care of their story and, uh, you know, whatever it is that that we're doing, they, they trust me. And I really appreciate that. So Wayne Pagini. He works at Fly South Management, and he, uh, yeah, he manages a ton of bands, uh, Periphery, Asteroid, a ton of other bands, um, and then you know, he works with like Issues. And Fly South is a huge management agency. You know, they take care of a day to remember Paramore. Uh, they got a lot of things going on. He also uh, helps work on the record label side of things that they have going on over there. He is a guy that I met. Oh man, I want to say in the early two thousands when he worked at Vagrant Records, and him and I connected on similar music tastes. We were both huge fans of the band. ISIS. And, um, yeah, we just started to talk and then we just basically every, every couple months we hang out, have a marathon lunch, just talk about the music industry, talk about the biz, talk about what we're up to when each other's lives. Cause we actually care about each other as human beings. But anyways, he, what I wanted to drill down with him on is, uh, Rammstein. And Rammstein is a band that he's worked with for many, many years. Uh, he's put out a ton of records by them. Uh, you know, he actually worked with them at Vagrant. Vagrant did not technically put out the uh, Rammstein record from, you know, whatever in the late 2000s, I want to say. But uh, he helped uh, bring that to fruition and get it through the label system that they worked on. But 
uh, you know, Rammstein, he was there when they started breaking here in the United States. And I don't think that many of us have that experience of like when a band just starts to click and you're working the record and you're trying to get people to pay attention to it. And then all of a sudden some things start to happen. And, uh, I wanted to drill down with him on that. Cause he, you know, I reached out to him, told him this general idea. And then he was like, yeah, I think actually I'd like to talk about that. I'm like, Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. So we walked through all those, uh, those details, you know, licensing and, um, you know, how to get a, a band's name out there when, you know, they're completely unknown here in the States. And, you know, that record, uh, you know, do Haas, I think I can, uh, you know, apologies for not being a huge, you know, Rammstein head in regards to knowing all of their records, but, uh, you know, the records that basically blew them up um that uh you know that that went platinum that's like it's it's a real deal and the band is unbelievable live i witnessed them gosh i want to say this was maybe like 2012 2013 they played uh, here in southern california i'd never seen them before and they're such an incredible show but you like band merch right rockabilia.com please use the code pc jabberjaw and you will be able to get 15 percent off amazing stuff. They've got a lot of Halloween themed things, Halloween. That's not even a word. Halloween themed things. Um, you know, from like, you know, your, your favorite spooky bands, like, you know, misfits and Bauhaus and all that sort of stuff. But then, uh, you know, they also have bands like ghost and iron maiden and Rob zombie. They got a lot of great stuff. And, uh, I think you need to stock up your closet with that sort of stuff. Okay, please. Like just, just do it. There's no reason to 15% off PC Jabberjaw. You know, the deal. You need band merch. They get great customer service, fast shipping, all of that great stuff. Okay. They're such a good company. I love them so much, not only for supporting the show, but, uh, you know, putting clothes on my back as well and putting clothes on your back. Okay. PC Jabberjaw, rockabilia.com. Do it up. Okay. I have rambled on far enough, but here's my discussion with Wayne and I love it. And you will learn some stuff. Okay. I learned a lot. So here we go. My name is Wayne Pagini. Um, right now, I am the, um, I guess, president is technically what I do. <laughs> That's good. Uh, president of Fly South Music Group. Uh, we're a management company based in uh, Orlando, Florida. I'm based uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, but I've been with the company now three years. Uh, in fact, just turned three uh, back a couple of weeks ago. And um, uh, again, we're primarily a music management company. We do now have some label initiatives as well that we are starting up and working on, which is great. Um, some of our Clients uh, include Paramore, Day to Remember, uh, Periphery, Issues, uh, Falling in Reverse, uh, Jason Bonham. I can go on and on. This sure. Wildlife. I can go on Wage War. I go on and on. Um, but uh, we have a great company. I think we're nine people deep. And um, uh, I oversee a lot of the day-to-day on the bands and the staff and stuff like that. So um, it's a great situation. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then we're, we're kind of specifically speaking about, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, your idea that you came to me with that I thought mm-hmm. was, was incredible was the, uh, you were working at, uh, London records and yes. like, and rammstein has been a band that you have worked right. with for in, for many years in different iterations when Correct. you were at Vagrant and everything mm-hmm. else. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, the idea of like working a record that is, uh, you know, basically starting to like really pop off mm-hmm. and just like, you know, granted this was the, you know, mid to late nineties where the, yeah. <laughs> the music industry is a little, much a little bit of a different situation. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But walk, right. walk me through. So mm-hmm. like you were working at London records as mm-hmm. a project manager. Correct. Yes. And you guys had picked up Romsheen after yes. a lot of right. people were initially not interested in working with them. <laughs> Correct. Um, yeah, basically, I mean, I got to London in uh, September of 1997. I was working at a company before that. Mm-hmm. Um, that company went out of business. I won't get into all that, but sure. it, it, it's, it, I could. There's it's a lot of interesting stories before Rammstein, but at the same time, it really... So when I got to London, in, uh, again, late summer, right at the end of the summer of 1997, uh, London Records had just picked up Rammstein to, to license from Germany into the U.S. So to make sure it's bet the backdrop for everybody is, is clear... Uh, Rammstein was signed to a, a German label called Motor Music. Um, and so they were a polygram was the name of the corporation under which all the labels, these labels exist. They owned Mo- Motor Music. So the way that works for people who might be listening and don't understand is Motor Music, to put that record out in the U.S., the way it would have to work is they would shop the band 
around to all the polygram labels in the U.S. to see if anyone wanted to pick it up to license it from Germany. Mm-hmm. If nobody did, then they would be clear to go outside the music group and try to find the partner. That's generally how those deals work. So what happened is, I guess on the first go around, nobody really was interested in the band when they put their first album out called Herzelide. That was the first album they ever put out. It kind of blew up in Germany, but never really broke out of that Germany, Belgium, Switzerland, Austria, that little, well, not little, I guess, yeah. but that corner of Europe, uh, the band was doing very, very well, but it wasn't translating outside of that yet. Okay. So when they put the second album out, it was still kind of living in that world, that those countries, and there were just no takers. Uh, but then enter Bob Biggs, okay? And Bob Biggs was uh, kind of a legendary record guy based in Los Angeles here and the founder of Slash Records. Faith No More, Soul Coughing, L7, uh, Los Lobos. I can go on and on and on. Right. Um, and Bob was a little, uh, Bob was a great guy, smart guy, a little quirky. Sure. And to get yeah. Romstein, you kind of had to be a little quirky. So yes. Bob gets into, bring Slash into Polygram as part of London Records as an imprint there. And he gets presented Romstein and goes, I'll put that out. <laughs> Just I crazy enough. Right. right. I get this. I'm going to put this out. He loved it. And at that time too, like were they mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, cause I mean, <clears throat> Romstein is, you know, clearly cemented itself as a very like unique, weird act, like yeah. controversial, like, they're button pushers at that time. Were they as well? Uh, yeah, there was definitely a lot of room. I, again, you're talking about Germany, you know, the mm-hmm. wall going down sure. and, and, you know, some of the, you know, the, the rolling of the R's in the, the pronunciations in German, uh-huh. there were definitely some rumors and people were a little skeptical about, you okay. know, who are these guys and what are they really doing? And, <laughs> yeah. and the visuals, they were still getting their feet wet with the visuals okay. and, and some of the, the stage, um, performance stuff that they do. So it was definitely a little, people were a little unsure of it, I sure. think, and, and just unsure of the whole thing. And also, if you look at that first album cover, they're all shirtless and kind of greased up. And it's a very, you know, yeah. little, yeah, people what's, are like, oh boy, what, what is, what's, yeah, what's we don't get it this? with the flowers and, <laughs> you know, and the, it's, it's, you know, this heavy music with the German vocals and, and it just was going over people's heads, I think. And just no one really knew what to do with it. Sure. Musically, it was pretty up the middle industrial music. I think it, it fit a, certainly a genre mm-hmm. uh, that at the time was pretty popular definitely and so I, I think everybody got the music but i think the visuals with the music and the german language how does that translate in english <laughs> right how do people in america listen to that and go yeah i get it when they don't understand what they're saying sure so it was a lot of that but bob saw the visuals and he heard and he, again it was because it was in out in left field a little bit mm-hmm. bob got it because sure. that's what bob that's how bob thought right so um when i got to the company my job was to be the slash guy they hired me to be a product manager, and I that was a bit of a new role for me. Uh, so I was going to be learning, and Bob, you know, Bob had started signing bands and said, hey, you're going to be working this. So I had never heard of the band. I had no idea, and I'm a heavy music guy, and I had no clue who they were. <laughs> right. So the beginning of it for me is I, I get to the company, again, it's around September, and it just so happens that that's around the time CMJ is happening in New York. and. You know, you remember CMJ. Huge, and, huge thing. Right. So it was a big convention. It was like the South by Southwest for New York City, right? right? Panels and shows and badges and the whole nine yards. So he says to me, Bob, hey, so they're playing CMJ. They're coming over to play. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. He goes, I want you to go see the band. And I said, all right. So they're playing a club in lower Manhattan called The Bank. The Bank was on Houston Street, just below uh, Broadway, okay. south of Broadway. And it was an industrial goth club. That's what it was. Sure. Right. It makes sense. The That's bank. It totally sounds like perfect. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So, but it was a cool, you know, it was a cool little club. And, and so they, they go on, it's, it's a weeknight. Yeah. I'm not, I don't even think I was officially, I was hired, but not officially started the job yet. Got it. So I had already been hired. I think I was starting like the week after, but she goes, I want you to go see the band. So you should check them out. I said, all right. So I get down there and they're going on at like 1230. Yeah, I was going to say like, and I'm just, I I live in Jersey, so I'm going to have to commute home after. And I'm just, man, this is late. They go on even later. And of course, no one's on time. No. And they come out and there's really not many people in the club. Most of the people there are just there to be at the club. They're not there to see, to see the band. And they come out. And now remember, this is a small club, so they can't do a lot of the fire and, you know, all the stuff that they've been doing in the bigger shows in Europe. And they come out, they start playing, and then they're tight. Mm-hmm. And, and then 
they start pulling the fluorescent tubes out of the lights okay. in the club yeah. and start smashing them across each other's chests. And I'm watching this and I'm like, what, what the fuck? Yeah. And and there's nobody really paying attention. And I, that's even more shocking is that right. no one's really noticing what's going on. And there were these two I remember specifically there were these two girls in the front right in the front of the stage dancing, mm-hmm. just totally gothed out, right. fishnet stockings, black leather little skirts and sure. the makeup and the whole thing and they're like loving it. And I'm watching these guys, and I'm like, look at these knuckleheads. These guys are idiots. <laughs> yeah. And 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 the, then Till took out the dildo with the phallus, and he's spraying white shit all over the place. And I'm like, <laughs> and I literally, I watched about half the show, and I said, I got to go. It's like 1.30 in the morning. I got to drive home. Right. And I, I got the idea. I, yeah. I think I get it. <laughs> well, maybe I don't. And, sure. I, and I remember saying to myself, I'm like, what am I going to do with this? I have no idea what right. this is. I said, this is totally wacky. So, uh, you know, I just think, all right, listen, I'll set it up. I mean, we'll see what we can do. But I'm baffled at what this yeah, is. Where, who do we market this to? And who do we market it to? These guys are nuts. I, I don't know I, what's happening. I, right. I just no one who's going to think take this seriously. Sure. That's the first thing I'm thinking. Who's going to look at this and not just go <laughs> this have the same reaction I did? Totally. So we start setting up the album and, and the, I get notice notification that the band gets a couple of weeks worth of dates at the very end of the year, so fast forward a few months towards like December, mm-hmm. beginning of December, they're going to come over and do two weeks with KMFDM, okay. which is perfect. Musically, it's perfect. Totally. So they, now KMFDM at the time is pretty huge. Right. I mean, they're, they're playing pretty they're big clicking. rooms, and yeah, they're on a pretty big band. And So I'm thinking, all right, that's a good setup because we're going to drop the album at the beginning of January of 98. Okay. So this is late 97 now. The album's been out in Europe for a while. We're putting it out at the very top of January, literally like a week or two into the new year. So this is a perfect setup for this for this thing. So um, the band, st- the show start on the, this. It was all West Coast based. This little run. Okay. So uh, the show they were they were going to do a warm up show in Santa Ana. Okay, just a headline show on their own before the KMFDM shows start. Probably at the Galaxy concert. I theater. think it was actually. I, I can't. I just remember yeah. sitting in a lot of traffic to get from LA to Santa Ana Absolutely, because yeah. I had no idea it was this bad. Right. So I get to the show again. You know they're playing a small club. They couldn't do any of their pyro. They couldn't do any of the stuff that they're doing at their shows now. Sure. And I remember seeing it. and They were good. It was fine. They did a, some of the other crazy stuff. But and you know there was like maybe sixty people, seventy people. And sure. I'm thinking, all right, you know, listen, it is what it is. I right. have to build this. I, from and scratch. I, I mean, I, I'm going to guess mm-hmm. there was like no buzzer expectations on this whatsoever. None, and especially from Peter Kupke, who's the president of London. Okay. You know, he really, I don't think he, I think he was questioning the whole thing the whole time. Like, why did Bob, right. why put, did we pick this? Why up? are we putting this out? Why <laughs> we, so, you know, it's, it's, it's in that, okay, you know, we'll see what we can do. And I go to Santa Ana and they're doing their thing and whatever. I meet the band for the first time and they're very nice. So the next night is in Vegas. They're playing in Vegas. And, um, the night after that is then the Palladium. Okay. Just came FDM is big enough to play in the Palladium. So the next night, I go come to L.A., I go to Santa Ana. The next night, the day I fly to Vegas to go to the show there. And then I was going to go to the Palladium on the Sunday night. So it's a Saturday night. I'm in Vegas, and I go to the show. And there's a pretty good crowd. It's, you know, six, 700 people maybe at the it was the Fox Theater maybe. Okay. Does that sound familiar? There's the, there's the Huntridge there. There was uh, – I'm trying to think of I what I can't remember the venue name. Vegas. It was it – was, not, not a ton, but it, Yeah, so anyway, so they go on now. And now – this is the first night that the venue is big enough for them to start breaking out some of the, the fucking <laughs> yeah, the firepower. Some of, yeah, some of the production. <laughs> and I'm watching, and now I'm getting to see some of the real stuff that they do. Right. And they, the crowd is starting to get into it. And I'm watching this, and at the end of the show, Till breaks out the flamethrower. And literally, you know, they're playing the music and the lights are going and he is literally blowing flames 20 feet over people's heads and people are losing their minds. Yeah. And I remember that was the first night I I left the venue that night and I said, you know what? This can work. I said, that shit's crazy. I said, people were people were into it. Yeah. And so that was the first time at that point of setting up the album and the response I was getting and just the overall vibe where I kind of walked away and I said, you know, maybe there's something to this. Sure. These guys can get over here and tour and do that. Right. And play these size rooms. This, I said, that's really impressive. Sure. 
So the next night in the Palladium, they were able to do the full production as well. And that was the first night I saw them put Flocka in the raft okay. oh, and yeah. send him out into the crowd. Sure. And again, I'm watching now there's 2,000 people in the Palladium watching this band. And it, I'm like, I, funny story, side note, the band didn't have a U.S. agent. Oh, okay. Good friend of mine was just starting out as a booking agent. His name is Michael Arfin. Oh, yeah. Okay, right, who's yeah. now a big-time agent. He's a huge agent, yeah. So Michael Arfin, who was an old friend of mine, <clears throat> he and I had kept in touch, and I said, hey, man, you should check this band out. So I'd sent them the record back when I got involved, and he was like, yeah, man, this band's kind of cool. And I said, you know, I went to Peter Kupke, the, the London guy, my boss, and I said, hey, man, I think, would you be cool if I spent some money to pay for Arfin to fly out? I want to cover his travel. Bring him out out. to L.A. because we need an agent in the States. Sure. I said, I'd love to get him involved. The management team was cool with it to get him to have him come out and see the band. I said, I'd love to just I think we should just pay one one flight, one night in a hotel, bring him to L.A. for the night, have him watch the show. Right. I said, he needs to see this. So um, Peter was like, you know what? Fine. Go ahead. You know, pay for his trip. Yeah, here's seven hundred. Go ahead. (laughs) So I'm like, great. So he's at the show with me. And he's watching this. He's at the Palladium show. He's seeing the boat and Flocka in the raft. And, sure. and he literally turned to me halfway through the show. He goes, dude, I'm in. Like he halfway through the show, he's like, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. So we got him on board. And, you know, that was, again, then getting an agent in, involved. And, and, you know, so, again, just people seeing it. Right. Was all they needed that to was, do was That see was it. the strength alone. Exactly. It's like people yep. listen to the record and be like, right. oh, okay, like I, I see what's happening. But, like, mm. it wasn't until they got that crucial piece. Right. The, 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 and again, what you and, and again, if you know anything about the band, the, the visuals have always been such a huge component. And I think that's kind of the next step here. I'll, I'll explain is yeah. how things really started to take off was with the videos. Right. Um, and MTV. MTV was a huge part of this. Sure. Um, you know, we, we then sent we put the record out at the top of the year. And, and like um, what's it, and when you were mm, when you were leading mm, that into like yep. you know putting out the record and everything like mm-hmm. that, you know I presume I mean you were you know hiring PR and doing all this stuff, yeah. but like you know what sort of budgets like were you working with initially? Well, again, budgets back then were different. I, I don't I I wish I could tell you exactly, it's but okay. we didn't have. I mean, there really weren't a lot of restrictions. I mean, you had sure. budgets, but you know, like for example, good the publicity thing is a very important part of this. It's yeah. very good. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, again, and this is where the whole thing you talk about marketing records and how it all has to try to work together because. Mm-hmm. Great example of the press. We had an in-house publicist, great lady, and a great publicist named Regina Josco Dunton. Uh, I think it might be just Josco now. I don't think the Dunton thing worked <laughs> out. But uh, Regina's great. She's a great publicist. Been around forever. Sure. Uh, and a, just an awesome person. She's a Yankee fan. We'll forgive that. But um, she was our publicist in-house, and she said, I think we need to bring someone in for this. Okay. And she brought in, she, she said, I think the right person is Steve Martin. Now, Steve Martin ran a publicity firm in New York called Nasty Little Man. Oh, yeah. Okay, course. Nasty Little Man who do huge stuff. Huge stuff. Radiohead, yeah. Foo Fighters, Beastie yeah. Boys. Funny side story, Hello Nasty, the Beastie Boys album, is named after his company because they answer the phones, Hello Nasty. Oh. That's how they came up with that <laughs> name of the album. That's Hello, a true nasty. story. Yeah, that's, that's a true story. That's so Steve, Steve was um, a great publicist. I've actually worked with him since on some stuff over the years, but... Um, but a but a heavyweight guy who would be able to get this band, and also we thought it was important to have someone with his clout, reputation, mm-hmm. and his credibility out there pitching this because we didn't want it to be a circus act. Sure, we although it looks like one, we knew it's a serious thing, and it needed to be positioned and 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 the message needed to be delivered properly. So that it wasn't looked at like the next insane clown posse or something like that, which right. wasn't taken seriously. Act, right. Yes. We didn't want it to be novelty because Rammstein viewed themselves as performance art. Totally. You know, it's, it's opera, basically. It's, you know, the visuals with this music and the whole thing has to work. So Steve agreed to do it, which I was a little surprised. I wasn't yeah. sure he was going to be down. I think, you know, he knew Bob. He knew Regina. You sure. know, I think he got the band. And I think that was a big important step in helping with the band's credibility here because having a guy like that out there talking about it sure. gave it validity to the press. And you were pay- and you were paying him, I presume, just a monthly fee. Like, yeah. Here's like $10,000 a month. This yeah. Is I mean, it wouldn't have been that much. But, but sure. again, though, to go to your point about the budget, Steve isn't cheap. Yeah. And even if we got him for a good price, of course, you're paying him on a monthly rate. 
you're still like that's a six a, months minimum or whatever. Right. Yeah, you're yeah. talking about a brand, basically a brand new band. Yeah. So most bands in today's day are not getting Steve Martin right. to do their press because A, he's probably not going to do it. And B, you don't have the budget to pay a Steve. Even if Steve cut you a break, it's still going to be totally, you know, maybe three, four grand a month. Right. And so who's got just for publicity? Yeah. That doesn't include just all for the, the other ac- stuff. Right. Just for the access to, you know, their, their database. And then on top of it being like, Oh yeah, if there's expenses that they need to build yep. back, where it's yeah, just absolutely. like yep. we got to get the. I mean, back then it was much. Well, also back then, keep in mind too, everybody's servicing physical CDs. Exactly. So no one, there's no digital no delivery. Digital downloads, of, right. Yeah. There's no streaming the album no, no, on no, no, Holix no. or any of this stuff. It's yep. you're, and then every every package you send is a CD and postage and a jiffy. It's two bucks a pop. Totally. And you're servicing a couple of hundred of those on yeah. top of it. You're sending out extras later. Yeah. It, so it's it was it was pricey. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. you know, again, you had budgets, but. They weren't what they are now. They yeah, were definitely, of course. There was yeah. a lot looser of a. It was you know, a, kind it of was a, a, probably it was one of those things where it's definitely a, a case by case basis. Absolutely, like, no doubt. I, I, we're down to spend the money, but you need to show us why this money is being spent. Right, of course. There, there always had to be a return, and even that's the case now too. You wanted some yeah. return on that, but yeah. But the, I'm glad you brought up the press thing because that was important sure. to have to have him involved and and he did get some great stuff on it, and it definitely made a difference having sure. him in the middle of it. So, right. and he's worked with the band since. Once he got involved, of course, the band kept he wanting to like, bring him. He was in the mix on everything. Right. So uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's a good, good starting point there. But, you know, we really tried to focus on the visuals. Right. That was a big part of this. So what happened is, um, this is, it's crazy to think about this. So back around this time, cassettes were still a thing. Yeah. So, again, because we thought the visuals were such a key component to this whole thing, I took a big percentage of my budget. I couldn't tell you how much, but it was sure. I. We took the two videos at the time. They had already had two videos done: Duhast and Angle. Okay. The Duhast one is the big one, yep. and then Angle was the play on um, from Dust Till Dawn. Oh, That's sure. That from yeah, Dust yeah. Till Dawn video of them in the club. Club, and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had the two videos done. So what I did was I made a, a shitload of VHS tapes. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And I went to a company, Steve Gottlieb, who founded and owned TVT, had started another business out of TVT called BioBox. Okay. Now, it was a really poorly thought out idea at the time, (laughs) if you think about it, because CDs were clearly just coming really right blowing up as the <laughs> predominant format for people to use. Yeah. But he had decided that the cassette tape still had a, a vibrant future sure. uh, in the business and just made these these he had started this business called BioBox. And basically it was for cassettes and for VHS. He had two versions and it almost was sh- like shaped and, and formatted like a, a deck of cards oh, okay. would come in. So it had a little flip top thing sure. and everything slid in and you had a place to put in the liner notes, the folder for liner notes and stuff. But you could print around the whole thing. Okay. The top, the sides, the whole thing, it would come shrink-wrapped. It was a really cool package. Yeah, slick. Right, it was very slick and cool. So with the artwork being, for Rammstein, as cool as it was, and the videos being the predominant, what we thought were really the marketing the tool, the drivers, yeah, yeah. I spent a boatload of money on these bio-box tapes. <laughs> right. And we sent them around the industry. We sent them out to Metal Radio. We sent some out to press. I actually was handing them out outside the... the uh, the KMFDM shows. Okay. We kind of really tried to drive the videos home and it worked to be quite frank. It really worked because it, we, people were seeing the imagery and they were watching this videos and the videos were so immediate. Right. So it really made a big difference. I think that was a big component of the marketing spend initially was spending all this money on these bio box tapes sure. because they were expensive, but they were the right, it was the right way to try to go right. with, with what we needed to do. And you just did the, the, both the videos that existed, yep. you just needed to like, basically that was already kind of part of the collateral that you guys had from licensing. Correct. The record. Those were already in the can. So right. we didn't have to spend any money sure. on video production. Right. We got those as part of the, the hey, licensing package, right? The licensing from from Europe, they spent the money on that. Sure. The motor music. So we got the videos for free. Right. Which was a huge advantage. Sure. So we could spend money on stuff like that, on Steve Martin, on advertising, on on Biobox. Right, right. So uh, it was great. And and it's funny. The guy who ran Biobox was this guy named Steve Yanovsky. Okay. And Steve was an A&R guy at Atlantic before going over to TVT. And I was at Atlantic back or a little earlier in my career. And I knew Steve. Okay. Great guy. Awesome dude. Very charismatic and 
And it was great because I got to deal with him and he was like a bro and sure. I'm helping put business in him and he's giving he's me stuff. To yeah, do this it was, thing. it was actually, yeah, a, it was yeah. a big bro danza. Yeah. And it worked out great. So we, uh, we went and, and did a lot of marketing directed towards the videos. In fact, it was funny, but as the band started, like people started paying attention. I remember even my radio guy mm-hmm. who built Bill Carroll, who's great, great guy and great radio guy. He was coming into my office like, Hey man, can I get some of these? I want to send them to my stations. And <laughs> yeah. you know, he was, you know, they were becoming really useful sure. uh, again. And it, we just kept kind of pounding the point home. And, uh, actually I believe it was bill who then got had relationships at MTV. Mm-hmm. And I forget the exact way it all went down there, but I think he took a meeting over there and he brought the videos with him to show them. And MTV just was like immediately, immediately they, we, it didn't take much uh, because, again, at the, by the time they started playing it, there really wasn't much going on yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, the record was out and it was just starting. There was a little buzz on it, but not, it, a ton, not yeah. where MTV should have been going. Hey, we want to get behind this. But they saw it and were like, we want to get behind this. Right. And they took to Haast and immediately just ran with it. Sure. And all of a sudden they were like, yeah, were they, we're I mean, and they were they were this. playing it like were they playing it constantly on prime time? Like, oh, yeah. How was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I mean, just yeah. immediately it's immediately. And so when we put the record out. It's funny. We I think first week we sold, I don't know, like twelve hundred, thirteen hundred, which was pretty good back sure. then. I mean, we were like, wow, all right, yeah, wow, this is cool. I, yeah. Listen, let me level with you. We have all found ourselves down a rabbit hole on YouTube. There is so much music to discover there. You can spend hours exploring new songs, artists, videos, just insane stuff. And there's an app to make it so much easier. YouTube Music is a brand new music streaming service combining everything you'd expect from a streaming service, but they got the magic of YouTube to bring it all to life. They make it super easy to find the music you're looking for from albums to singles to music videos to live performances. You can be ping-ponging off so many different things and shove so much stuff in your head. It's amazing. You don't know the song's name? Just search by the lyrics. It's that easy. Plus, the app gives you recommendations based on taste, location, and time of day. You can easily find the music trending around you no matter where you are. And with their YouTube Music Premium, it gets even better. You get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. How rad is that? Enjoy your music wherever you want it, even when you're offline. Download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then, just enjoy music for $10 a month or $9.99. Let's be real, okay? Terms and restrictions, of course, apply. YouTube music, it's all here. I love this stuff. I am able to ping pong around with my son, show him you know, some live clips, show him some music. It's great. I love this so much. YouTube music, download it today. Well, what I realized, you know, funny thing to mention here is I, as I got deeper into the project and started to kind of get my bearings on it, I realized the whole Lost Highway soundtrack the David Lynch thing. Sure. You know, he had put two songs from the first album on that soundtrack because he right. discovered the band on his own sure. and was like, wow, this band's great and put two songs. And that's, that soundtrack did very well. Right. And so there was a little more awareness on the band than I expected. Sure. Because of that. Right. And so we, in fact, you know, funny thing, when we started selling the record, we put a, uh, we put a, uh, a feedback card, like a, like an info card in the CD. Okay. And people would fill it out and send it in. Like where they heard of the band or whatever. Yeah, we, there was a bunch of questions on there. Sure. So we, we asked, like, where did you hear about the band? Yeah. What are some of your other favorite bands? Okay. I think was one. And I remember that was the first time I ever heard of the band Wump Scut. Oh, yeah. Of course. And I was like, <laughs> I remember seeing it because it would, on every single card, yeah, like, I was like, what's this who the fuck band? is Wump Scut? Yeah. I, just, yeah. I can't even say it. Nonetheless, know who the hell that is. Totally. And again, man, I'm going... I listen to metal. I don't know any of this crap. Like, what right. I, am I living under a rock? Absolutely. You I never heard of Rammstein. I never heard of Wumpscut. <laughs> I'm like, what? Maybe I'm sleeping through this. I yeah. said, I'm listening to too much hate breed or something. Sure, yeah. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, you're like, uh, clearly the, yeah. the, the, the German industrial market, I have no idea about. I have about. no idea. So yeah. anyway, it, it was interesting. So what we did was, though, funny, another thing that we tried to do, my goal was to try to build up a real fan base here, you of know, course. really make it more. So what we, we also offered fans like fill out your information and we'll send you some stickers. Sure. I had a million stickers in my office right. and I, I said, would you like a copy of the lyrics in English? So we actually had printed out 
sheets of the lyrics. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, because again, we, we thought the language barrier was right. going to be a problem. And you're talking about pre-internet, like pre-internet, I mean, like the infancy of the internet. But like it pe- was just starting. Right. It, there was no nobody was. I dude, I didn't have a computer in my office. Right, right. I was. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't have a computer. Yeah, had a, yeah so, a notebook and a phone. Exactly. <laughs> Everything was on the phone. Yeah, totally. Um, right. In fact, you know, just even dealing with the manager. Yeah. And the and the, the label. Oh yeah. I had a call. I had to get on the phone with them all the time. And right. You know, thankfully I lived in New York at the time. Sure. So it's and like a so, five hour. Difference. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. as big of a deal, but um, you know, in fact, I remember the funny, funny story. We got beat by Germany badly in like the world cup or something. And okay. I, I don't fucking care about soccer, but right, right. the manager, e- Emmanuel, who was a, you know, really good dude. And he, he, uh, he was a big soccer guy. I pick up the phone when he calls me, I could see it's him on the call. I got the caller the ID call on my ID, phone. Yeah. I, I'm like, Hey, Emu, what's up, man? And all these we kicked your ass today. That's the first thing I get. Right? I'm like, yo, Emu, I don't care. Bro. Yeah, you're like, what? Keep I said, your, oh, I said honestly, I don't even remember. Did we play you today? I don't even know. <laughs> but uh, everything was on the phone. Sure. Um, there was no internet. So we were, I was literally, I would, when I got free time in my office, yeah. I was the one putting sending stuff, sending stuff. So I had manila envelopes. Right. I had stickers. I had the printed out lyric sheets. Sure. And I was stuffing them in manila things. And putting stickers there, trying to get out as many as I could. At the beginning, it wasn't tough because they were coming in a you know I'd get yeah, a, few a few a day, day. right? And then you know a couple months later, I'm getting a couple hundred a day. Yeah, you're like, like we needed. Well, I just was like, I think this is out. I yeah. think I think we're done with this. <laughs> I can't keep up with it. So we finally had to put an end to it. And then as future runs of the CD were getting pressed, we just stopped putting those inserts in there. We had sure. we had to stop. It was, it was unmanageable. Like, yeah, it just became. I was getting hundreds of them and. Uh, and I just, you know, I was like, all right, unfortunately, some of these people are just not going to get a response. But right. we tried to keep up with that as much as we could. Yeah. Which, uh, again, it was a way to try to be interactive with totally. the fan it's very, base. It's very, and, I mean, it's very reactionary. It's very hand to mouth. Like you are supplying something that someone is really trying to understand absolutely. and get right. involved with. And like, yep. yeah, if a person is actually taking that step to mail in a postcard, mm-hmm. like they're obviously invested yeah. in this thing. It, absolutely. And, and and I thought it would be cool. Like imagine... I always thought about it from the other side, too, of imagine if you send something in thinking, I'm never going to hear back from these people. Yeah. I'm never going to get anything. And then you get it and you're like, holy shit, this is amazing. Because think about how excited yeah. a young kid is who lo- maybe loves the band yeah. and is one of those first people to buy the album. You know, you know you're dealing with that first wave of fans and they think to themselves, oh, yeah, I'll send this in. But I know these. I know are. I'm not going to. And it. then they get something in on the doorstep a month later or even a couple weeks later. It's like, oh, my God, that yeah. you think about what that how, how that energizes that fan to go out and be like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm going like, to evangelize yeah, this forever. Go, goes to his friend and goes, go send that card in. Go buy this record, send the card in. They'll send you the lyrics, send you some stickers. Totally. So it, it was it was a cool thing. I thought it was a cool idea. It oh, was, I remember, again, I remember yeah. for, for me specifically, because uh, Rage Against the Machine, like a okay, huge yep. band for me. Uh, you know, once I saw their video in 120 minutes, it was like I was all <laughs> yeah. in. And it was one of those things where this was probably... Yeah, it was like 93 to like 96 or so. Yep. They sent out seven inches. Oh, no way. Like, wow, I, that's a really aggressive it, thing it, to totally. do. Totally. <laughs> and like, and I, I cannot... Makes attri- my stickers look like... No, you know, I know. Nothing. I feel like... I, I wasn't now. trying to one-up you, but it was <laughs> It was one of those things where it's like, I couldn't attribute... Like, still to this day, I'm like, I have no idea where they started to send those to me. Like, right. whether it was because... I mean, I did go to a lot of their shows. Like, you know, they played Cal State to make us hills for like a, you know, K-Rock free show or thing, whatever. But all of a sudden, I started to get these things. I was already all in on the band, but then yeah. I was like what the heck? Like they're sending me seven inches That's like awesome. for their new singles before evil empire. That's comes amazing. Out. Yeah. Same sort of principle yeah, yeah, right. of just like, okay, we, we deem you as this, right. you know, child tastemaker or whatever. Like we're yeah. sending out these, you know, a thousand seven inches to fans. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, that just, that all that does, like you said, it crystallizes it in people's heads. And it was funny. I remember I was out here a couple of months later, mm-hmm. I was out here with another band in LA. I had yeah. to come back out for a photo shoot and uh, I had a band in LA for some stuff. A band called Harvey Danger. Of course. Uh, who had a big hit single and I Flagpole said it. Yeah, Flagpole said it, dude. Big hit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I was out here with them doing a photo shoot with their manager. I came to LA and I remember we were at a little studio over in Hollywood, uh-huh. right off Santa Monica Boulevard, uh, right by the Shakies over oh, there shit. on Santa Monica Boulevard. <laughs> of course. And I, yeah, like in Hollywood. And I remember I came out of the studio and one of my Rammstein stickers was on the back of someone's car on the street and I wigged out. So I was like, oh, my like, God. I'm like, real life. Holy shit. That's one of my stickers. And I just think, oh, my God, people are really using these. Right. Like these things are actually finding their way onto people's cars. And it like totally I just was 
I just was so blown away by that, that I was out here for another band's thing. Yeah. I come out of the studio. Not connected to anything. Nothing. Yeah, 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 and I'm yeah. like, oh my God. Right. So, so did, yeah. did you feel like as, as the record started to pick up momentum, mm-hmm. like, you know, did you feel like certain uh, levels were unlocked as far as like, now you've got more resources in the sense of like, mm-hmm. You can do, you know, whether it's like offering tour support or like, right. you know, like how, how did that kind of. Yeah, definitely. In fact, so what happens is the band, the record starts blowing up. We, we sell the first week. We had the first week. It went yep. well. And I remember Peter and I probably would never. He'd probably hate that I bring this up. Sure. <laughs> he says, he says, yeah, you know, you know, in his German accent, he's like, yeah, you know, it's pretty good first week. It was, but next week it will be down 50 percent. And of then course. it will just yeah, we'll do 1200, 600. Right. He just thinks it's going to go. And meanwhile, in my mind, I'm going, even if we do that, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> but it's like so he, you know, and then sure enough, the next week it goes up. Really? Yeah, it went up. Second week it went up. Not a lot, but it went up. Sure. 10 percent. I'm like, whoa. Wow. And then it went it went down a little, but then went back up. And then we realized, all right, we got something here. This sure. thing is like we saw it was leveling at that thousand, twelve hundred, and it was slow, steadily over the first few weeks. And that's when I think everybody was like, all right, maybe there's something going on. Here. Right. And yeah, that's it's when not the, dropping. Yeah, the bad the bosses, and that's when MTV then kicks in shortly thereafter. Sure. And then we start seeing it's going up. It's going right. up. We did get some pushback. We started then to think about all right, what can we do with radio? Uh-huh. And with radio, that was a little bit of a tougher sell because of the German angle. Sure. So we actually did get an English version of Duhast English cut. edit. Okay. We did do an English edit. We tried it, and it just didn't work. Um, and, and it was it was interesting because we we knew we had to try it. We definitely got some pushback from Germany on it, as far as from the man from management in the band, sure. they were not into it. But they also knew, hey, look, we got to try it if that's what they think they need. Mm-hmm. And we'd be I'd be lying to everybody if I said it sounded good. It was very awkward. It sounded it, it sounded weird. It just didn't work. Right. So we scrapped the idea of putting that out there, and we went with the German one, and then K-Rock in New York started playing it. Okay. Well, you know, at the time, K-Rock New York was a rock station. It was a big deal, and they jump on board. Right. And I remember, I remember hearing it for the first time. Someone, hit, someone called me. I didn't even know what was going on. Like, dude, put on K-Rock right now. And I put it on. I was like, oh, my God. I, I, that, that's that, played, yeah. yeah. Like, and it's that, those are like some crystallized hit. moments. Yeah. yeah. That's the stuff you go. Oh, my God. Like, all right, this is something. This is real. Like, yeah. this is happening. And then, you know, some big stations around the country started playing it. But again, to your point about tour support, I remember they got a chance, uh, an offer in the spring or summer of that year to go play the big Chicago forget the name of the station that was a big rock station in chicago who okay. did a really big festival every year sure and they got asked to play it and they you know it was like a one-off yeah and of again and, and again if anybody have seen romstein <laughs> it ain't cheap yeah okay it is a production yeah, and you're a talking half. about an eight piece like the- <laughs> it is it is crew and fire and flights and production i mean it yeah. is expensive so we had to give them a lot of support for that sure but again, it's blowing up. So, you know, this right. is what it took. So we, we what, got it going. What, what was the jump like, you know, when you started to see it? Like, obviously, MTV and the radio hit. Like, you know, were you doing like 5,000 copies a week, 10,000? Like, was it was it making those? It was making those moves. When it got to the, the height of it, yeah. at the height of it, it when it, radio was fully on board, like sure. we were getting somewhere with radio, MTV was at its height. We, at one point, were up into the mid-20s every Damn. week, 25, 20, 28,000 a week. Right. It was really cranking. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were blowing. We were in the top, t- you know. Again, at that time, that kind of number is you're only in the top 30 or 40. Right. Uh, but it was every week, every week, every week. And now, and now it's just word of mouth. Sure. Now it's... And then we reissued the first album. Okay. We then took that in and put that out. Sure. So it was now... Because, and then Family Values hit. And then you got to remember, so then that starts up with Korn and Limp Bizkit right. and Rammstein. And that was... By that point, the band was, you know, it was really exploding. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was blowing up. Selling those records, the band's playing arenas. Mm-hmm. They're opening for that tour, and just watching the crowds. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's a situation where you're watching that from the side of the stage or from the, and you're just watching twenty thousand people lose their minds. And it, it really, I remember, I remember the Polygram German guys came in for the New York show, or it was actually Jersey. It was the Meadowlands. Okay, and uh, I remember they came for that. And all the big wigs were there, and they they actually it was a very they turned to me halfway through the show. They're like, "Hey, man, you guys like this is amazing. Like, we can't believe this is happening." <laughs> like, it, yeah, and it was it was cool. They you know very very respectful and very appreciative of all the work we had done. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was a crazy situation, and then it blew up there. But in a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. 
Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I'll, I'll sort of get to this point because this was an interesting time. So back polygram as as the record we were the record we kind of got to the end of 98 Mm -hmm. the record again i think it had been certified at least gold at that point and then was on its way to platinum or whatever and uh we get to the point in 1998 where polygram gets sold to universal okay and so um the way the way it was structured i hate to get too deep into the business but it's important roger ames was the head of polygram okay and he owned London Records, okay. which was a Polygram-owned company. Company, sure. Right. So when Polygram gets sold to Universal, Roger was going to be blown out, See basically. He, had, sure. he wasn't going to be sticking around. So his thing was, I'm gonna be, I can take London with me wherever I go or take it out of the system. So when that sale goes down, uh, Peter Kupke comes into my office. Remember, one day he comes in, shuts the door sits down <laughs> like okay okay and he goes so uh the sale is going down he goes it's going to be announced later today uh roger is going to be out and london is going to be out of here so we're not wherever we're going we can't take romstein with us because they're a polygram owned band per the motor music deal right which is a polygram owned company so they're going to have to stay within the universal system so effective immediately, Romstein is over for our company. Wow. And I'm like, but why? I, well, no, I, I understood what was going <laughs> right, on, yeah, but I'm like, I just was like, but Peter, I was like, we're about to launch another single and we're about to put out another video. And I said, I've got all this shit going on. He's like, I don't care. Right. It's over. Because we're not going to spend time and resources on a band that's not going to be part of our company moving forward. Right. And I was just like, oh, and again, I, you know, before we talked about that other story, which, you know, is a different thing. That was a come to Jesus moment for me in the sure. business side of things to see how things really operate mm-hmm. and to go. And, and again, I, what am I going to say? It's first of all, he's the boss. Sure. Second of all, I'm like, yeah, he's okay. right. Like this makes no sense. Why would we do that? Right. And as much as my pride and, you know, something that I was so involved in, I have to kind of just, you literally just have to like turn like, off the faucet yeah. immediately, just right. shut the lights and move on. That was tough, you know, cause I was so invested at that point. You know, it was a, defining who I was basically in some respects. And I said, man, this is tough, but I, it, I understood. Right. And it was a very interesting time. So at the end of 98, that went down and yeah, we basically had to kind of walk away from it at that point. You know, we, we saw it through and we did some yeah, stuff. You that finished we, yeah. You finish things and transition. Right. Pro- we didn't want to appropriate them, as you could. Exactly. Yeah. But we, yeah, we had to move on from that. So yeah. that was kind of the, the whole thing and the whole way it went down. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, Interesting to say the least. Yeah, I was like, oh, like literally, somebody yeah, just pulled the stop a, out like, of the drain, and it was like, all right, that's right, we're it. we're on our way to a platinum selling record, but yeah, yeah we can't touch it anymore. Yep. And uh, hopefully, these uh, people that are going to be touching it yeah. in the future, will... and then yeah, then Universal took over. Universal uh, Records <laughs> took it. Sure, and actually, it was good because um, some friends of mine who were at Island, you know, mm-hmm. they kind of Island, and you know, there was so much going on then at the time, so much and, merging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, the way it worked for London is we used the Island staff because London Records was a small label, small label. Sure, you know, we were about maybe 10, 12 people, mm-hmm. but so we used Island, who were one floor up from us in the building. We used their promotion team, got it. Their sales guys, like their people, were part of our. They, we they we used their services basically, right. and they were good people. A lot of good people there. Some really really people good at the jobs and they were big, they were a big part of the success too. They were involved in it and really helped push it. But, um, they ended up, a few of those people ended up getting moved over to universal. 
and, and so they were able to. They were able to because the, they were involved. So it was helpful for the band to be involved. But it was definitely I know you know from dealing with the band then later right. and getting the stories. It was not an ideal situation because <laughs> they lost their people. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're me and Bob especially were their core guys, and right. they when we were out of the picture, they felt a little. You know, yeah, it's lost. scary when yeah. all of a sudden you're like, well, yeah, you hear every story about anything that goes wrong in the music industry. Mm-hmm. It's usually because the people that they trust get oh, uprooted, and it's oh, like, yeah. oh, where does it? Where <laughs> do we all go about from that? There? Yeah, of course, absolutely. you know all about that. So it's it's tough. I mean, it was tough for them. It was a big transition, and then also going to the bigger corporate side of things. You know, totally. Universal is a much more corporate type label. They had a lot of bigger bands. You know, London, the thing about London Records was great was, you know, we were kind of the boutique cool little label. Right. You know, because we not only had the bands like Rammstein, but we did all the Moax stuff. Sure. DJ Shadow, Goldie. We put all that stuff out. We had right. a deal with Moax over in the UK and um, we did all that stuff in house. So we were kind of the cool hipsters. Totally. In the building, which was weird. I mean, I certainly wasn't. <laughs> but we I mean, but we had like bands like Imperial Teen who oh, sure. were really cool. And right. we put out some really good hip hop stuff. J. Ru the Damager. Oh, sure. Uh, WC from Westside Connection, who had a lot of cred. Right. Um, you know, we had really cool bands. Yeah. And, and yeah. a very eclectic roster. Like Absolutely. It was, it was, but mm-hmm. it, it all ultimately kind of delved into that 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 cool motif of absolutely like, oh yeah like that, that that's cool everything like, we yeah we had a lot of that stuff in fact peter once made a joke we put out a lot of, i'm swimming in credibility he goes he goes we need hits swimming in credibility i would go into his office he would have britney spears on because she had just blown up okay this is right around the time she blows up and she that was the video. The video of her prancing around in the schoolgirl outfit. They hit me, baby, one more That's time. That's the yeah, one. Exactly. He's just like I remember. I went in. Why once. Don't we have? He was just like, look at this. It's <laughs> fucking brilliant. And I'm like, dude. I said, Peter, come on, man. It is. It's fucking brilliant. And I'm just like, oh. I'm like, all right. I yeah, get I'm gonna it. go put out. I'm this gonna go. Ra- yeah. I'm gonna go put out this Rammstein album. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. So the uh, anyway. two two last things I want to hit on. Yeah. Was the uh, so you know that that time as things started to you know really just click and obviously sales were going through the roof and everything mm-hmm. like that. What uh, you know because usually people have those uh, those moments of just like oh I mean now that you can reflect on it of like oh wow like that was that was crazy that we you know spent all this money on this that we did this thing like whether it worked or not like you know the bio boxes right is a good example of that yeah, yeah. but like some of those things like as they started to click where you were just like oh wow like you know i, I guess we're doing this mm-hmm. like is there anything that sticks out in your head that would kind of fall into that category of like oh wow like i guess we are spending a lot of money on this thing and we'll the see. tour support okay the tour support for that chicago show sure that i i, I if my memory serves correctly that might have been up around 50 or 60 grand I was gonna, that's what was my i, I thought that, that number sounds 60 sounds right sure we got a budget from them and because uh, you know you had to get a budget back in the day we got budgets sure and so we we they sent the budget in for the shortfall and i remember being like wow that's a lot of money for one show and i, I yeah. but it was like again they were going to close the show okay because rammstein has to play at night they, they can't yeah, play during the day you got to have it be dark and it's got the fire and the whole thing and right we just thought, man, there's going to be 20,000 people. And again, this is before family values. So right. they haven't been doing stuff like this. Like this is an everyday thing yet for them. Right. Maybe in Europe, it's just starting to get there. But in America, this is like kind of a new thing. This is an opportunity that we have to really look right. at. Right. I mean, right. and again, it was not only because, again, if, if you go back and think about the, the way things worked back then with radio, mm-hmm. it was almost like if we said no, it would have been a big uh, political mess with the station on top of it. Totally. And that was, I remember that I can't remember the Chicago name. Rockstock maybe was the name. I can't remember. It sounds, it sounds, sounds yeah. God knows. It's rocks on the race. like whatever. Think about it as corny a name as you can come up with and radio probably named it. <laughs> Unsilent that. night. Yeah. yeah. It's like, so <laughs> with that said, we just thought, man, this is a huge look. This yeah. was the first chance we were getting to get a look like that on a sure. big festival headlining. We just felt like we had to do it. Yeah. There was definitely some discussion on whether it made sense. Oh, I think there was some definitive. I think we might have even asked Germany to pick up some of the bill sure. uh, from the from the home home base. Yeah, but it was it, that. I remember that was one of those like really hand wringing. Yeah, like oh boy, are we really going to do this? Yeah. And, but again, the record was really going. The one thing though, I should say though about the economics of all this, and a funny story to go with it. Sure. Back then, labels started experimenting with something called developing artist pricing 
where they were putting out bands and and dropping the price down oh, and so wor- low. and working with the la- working with the retailers where they would lower the price to the retailer the retailer would then agree to lower the price down and everybody would sort of make very minimal money with the idea that you were trying to develop these smaller bands to sell a lot of records and get the development going so we did that for Rammstein that was mm-hmm. part of the thing too and then eventually when you sold a certain amount you'd stop sure. and go back to the regular pricing but so we were doing that. That was part of the deal with Romstein. As it started to go, we said, hey, we want to really start moving this in volume. Let's drop the price and try this developing artist pricing. So it's the end of family values. Mm-hmm. I take the train up to New Haven, Connecticut. There was a show up there okay. it was towards the end of the tour. And I'm backstage after the show. I'm in the dressing room. And, and Paul, the guitar player, comes up to me in a towel. Okay? He's in nothing but a towel. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes up to me and he goes, we go into the record store today and our record is really cheap. And I said, yeah. I said, right. We, we've been dropped. We dropped the price. And I tried <laughs> right. to explain to him. He goes, this is no good. Right. Makes our band look Looks cheap. cheap. Yeah, yeah, It makes yeah. us look bad. All the other albums are all full price. Our album's too cheap. We need to, it's no good. And he just like stormed away. Yeah. Like I, 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 I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, oh, like, oh, oh, I just got noted. I just got my yeah. hand slapped by the gun. And I, I, you know, and he didn't, he, it just wasn't registering, right? No, for him not at that, all. That was, it was a sales tactic that yeah. was working. Sure. That was going to help him in the long run. But, and again, you learn later, again, if you see Romstein, Romstein, and this was said to me years later as I worked with them down the road, is Romstein always viewed themselves as a Mercedes Benz. Yeah. They're a luxury vehicle. They are a luxury brand. Right. They're, They're not they, Honda Civic prices. Right. This right. is, we, we give everybody like big, this is all about big and all the way and yeah. not, not going cheap. No. And if, again, if you have ever seen them, you'd know that. Totally. And so uh, I, 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 I get it now. Yeah. But it took me a long time to know, understand what they, how I didn't know how they perceived themselves at the time. Right. Later, all that came out when I worked with them, you know, years later, a vagrant, but, um, now, I put one and one together then to figure out, like, they didn't think that that was a good look for them no. and understanding what we were trying to do. But totally. They're interesting. like, yeah, all, all, of our, all of our prices are, you know, they're eighteen ninety nine. Like, right. That's what our CDs are charged. Yeah. Like, they they felt like char- their album should be more money yeah. than the rest because it's better. Because it's and it's And it's also, yeah, and it's also like we, we provide great artwork. Right. We give people great visuals. We make great music. So our album should be more money. Right. And right. that's an interesting guy. But again, it makes sense. So you think about it now, you're like, okay. But back then we were, um, you know, I'm like, oh, damn, okay, yeah, it was a little caught yeah, off guard like, by uh, that. I was, was a little bad. caught off guard, but it was uh, <laughs> the, that was another another sales tactic that we yeah, used. That you had to, to employ yeah, at that had point. To employ. And again, like, so think about it. We're talking about money and the budgets and all that. So we're selling all those records, but we're not making the money wise. It's not coming in at the full right at yeah, that level. You're talking about yeah. a razor thin margin. You're exactly. talking about as opposed to you know three or four dollars a unit. Right. You're making maybe a dollar a unit. Yeah, roughly. yeah. It was it wasn't much. I mean, granted, in the long run, it worked out fine. Of course, but, of course. You know, really though, but how many bands tried that same tactic and didn't have the success that Romstein had with the sales? So. You know, a lot of bands were trying that tactic and not moving anywhere yeah. near the volume. So imagine what those bands were taking a hit. Say, a hit. say hello to the early 2000s. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> where where totally. all of a sudden you're being like, oh, cool, we're taking 80% of our product back? Right. Oh, 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 yeah. oh, okay. And we were selling yep. that at $7.99 a piece? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was a little crazy. Yeah. yeah, it, was, yeah. It, was, it was an interesting time. <laughs> the, uh, the last thing I want to hit on yeah. was the, uh, the notion of, um, you know, like you were saying, you were, you were thrown to the deep end. You were, you know, managing budgets and managing all these, these disparate parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think that, uh, something that's always illustrative, I know when people are entering things that they have no idea what they're doing and they're figuring it out on the fly is <laughs> the, uh, the mistakes that you make. Oh yeah. You know, like, so I'm mm-hmm. sure that there's one or two instances where you were like, oh man, like I made this mistake. I learned from it. Like, right. I, you know, it wasn't a catastrophic mistake, but I definitely, yeah, there were some of those, um, I think, you know, just really part of it was, uh, again, a lot of an experience. I'm, I'm, how old am I at the time? 20, uh, 26, 25. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah, young, yeah. so I, I don't know anything. And so I think there was a couple, I think one was, um, again, I remember with the videos, when we first got the videos, um, you know, we sat in, a, in our weekly meeting, London, we had a meeting and, and Peter looked at me across the table. He's like, so have you shown the videos to the sales team? And I just looked at him and I went, uh, no. And he just, he just looked up at the sky <laughs> and just was like, oh my God, like, what are you doing? Like, and I just remember yeah. I'm so embarrassed because I'm in front of the whole staff and sure. that was one. Of the, and again, that was something where I realized, okay, like, man, I've got to do, I've got to make sure every department knows what's is, up, is, knows what's up. And, and, and that was a real 
come to Jesus moment for me in the sense of what my role really is. Like I've really got a QB this thing, you know, right. this is really up to me to make sure everybody has what they need. And I do remember that very specifically. And then there was another moment. This is a good one. The head of promotion or one of the big heads of promotion at Island at the time was a guy named Joe Riccatelli. And, uh, you know, they were, you know, they, again, they were involved and things were starting to roll. The record was doing well at radio. So we were starting to think about what the next single and what the campaign, what the rollout would be. And in a meeting full of people, a lot of the heads of the, of the, I brought up the idea of, there was a lot of discussion of what the single should be. And I said, well, maybe we should service one track because there was alternative and, and active rock. There were sure. two, the two formats. And back at the time, alternative radio was playing hard all the heavier bands mm -hmm. and all the hard, you know, Limp Bizkit and Corn and all that stuff. New metal was happening and rock and, and alternative were both playing all of it. Totally. I mean, you can't find that stuff anywhere near alternative. <laughs> you listen to what alternative radio is now. No. So I remember I said, well, what, what about, what if we send one song to one format and send another song to, to another the, format. See how it goes. Right. And I, I thought that was, this is a logical thing. Right. If, if, they're, if the two formats, the two promotion people are fighting over the track, let's send them both. Right. It's a win-win. I swear Joe Riccatelli had fire come out of his <laughs> eyes. I, 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 he looked at me and was literally like, what? What, child? He was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And, <laughs> and I, I, he, goes, he goes, and he, he said something to the effect of like, just don't say anything. Like, just shut up. And I just was like, yeah, oh. well, like, first of all, dude, you're not my boss. So right. that's the first thing. But second of all, like, dude, I don't know. I'm just, just throwing an idea out here. Isn't I, this a safe space? I, well, I'm thinking to myself, I thought, I'm thinking, like, and as soon as I thought about it, it was like light bulb. I'm like, right. this is a great idea. Of course. And he was like, we yeah. would never do that. Right. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what? Follow-up question. Why? Like, why are we not? <laughs> I just, yeah, that was one of those. I just, I, I was pretty embarrassed. I mean, I, I didn't uh, know. I really was no. an honest question. It, it, was a, it was a logical thought that you were Absolutely. like, hey, have, have we ever considered this? Right. And it's like, yeah, th those are definitely, I mean, you, I'm sure you've been on the opposite side, not where you're chewing people's heads off, but someone right. brings up an idea right. in a meeting and you're like, Oh, oh no! Yeah, like that was. I, I wish you could take yeah. that back. Yeah, and I, I, I felt bad. I, I didn't. Yeah. You know, I think I maybe even apologized later. I was like, dude, I didn't know. And he, and he was cool about it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. I just had. I, <laughs> I honestly, yeah, I honestly thought it was like great, yeah, cool, this, man. This like perfect. Yeah, this this seems to solve everybody's problem. <laughs> nope, nope, not at no all. No way. <laughs> so that was that was another one where I was. Yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't. Again, it didn't cost anything. No, it was no, 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 no harm, no foul. But a very illustrative experience where it's yeah. like, okay, I I know right. I know how to handle it. And also, you know what it also taught me was like this project's now out of my hands. You know, this is now in the hands of these guys and sure. senior vice presidents, and it's it's now you realize quickly when a band's down there selling twelve hundred copies a week and it's a cool little thing everybody's like, Oh, Wayne, you're doing great. You're doing great. Keep it up. Yeah. And when it hits a certain threshold, it flips the afterburners act. Yeah. <laughs> people, the, the big wigs step in and go, all right, dude, move away or, you know, not move away, but you're, you're going to be involved certainly, but right. the decisions are now moving up the ladder to people yes. who are much higher up the food chain than you, who make a lot more money than you right. and who have a lot more at stake. So you're now, your voice is becoming more of a whisper in this project where at the beginning you were, you had a bullhorn. Yep. Now you you're kind of buried at the bottom of this and, yeah. and it, it's, and that's fine. You come to learn that you accept it. And oh, then at that point you hope that maybe someday you could be the guy at the top of the ladder who makes those that decisions, has but it has right. the bullhorn. But that's one thing I learned as the record became bigger and bigger and bigger. My voice became a little more crowded. The, the voices get more crowded. There's more right. people, uh, heads of companies are involved, senior vice presidents, presidents, CEOs yep. are weighing in, and you're like, mm. oh yeah, what yeah. A, where do I stand here? Right. <laughs> but you, you, you realize that you're still the starting point. Mm -hmm. Like I'm still dealing directly with Motor Music. I'm right. still getting all the calls from the manager. Sure, sure. I'm still in the middle of it, but now I'm deferring. Yeah, it's a lot of deferrals. Right. To people and I'll go, to go check with somebody. On exactly. That I yeah. can't just make that call myself or, right. you know, other people are on the calls with me. Right. And all that. So, yeah, it was it, you learn that, too. Yeah, pretty yeah, quickly. Yeah. And that's more of that learning stuff as you go, you know. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, this was super fun, Wayne. OK, great. And it's long overdue. It, I'm glad <laughs> of, I knew eventually we'd get a chance to do something. Yes. And when you when you kind of reached out and, and so I was like, ah, this is my chance. Exactly. My chance to be on Ray's podcast. <laughs> It's perfect. I feel like a star. <laughs> That's good. I'm right, glad. Great. Well, I hope, yeah, I hope you got enough out of me. Oh, boy. That was a meaty one, right? 
a lot of fun stories, a lot of tangents, a lot of great stuff. So I really appreciate Wayne for sharing the stories and uh, yeah, walking me through some stuff that uh, you know is uh, many of us do not get to experience. And then you know when you hear those stories and when you hear those kind of you know the those I wouldn't even call them strategies, but when you hear those ideas kind of fleshed out, it's like oh wow, that's cool. Like that's that's how that kind of happened. So thank you very much, Wayne. I really appreciate it. Next week is another in the be specific series. Great episode. Great episode. This one is with another manager. His name is Sean Carano. Uh, he does his own thing at a headphones management now, but uh, used to work with uh, the Artery Foundation, also worked with uh, Royal Division Entertainment. Right now, he manages bands like Polyphia and Covet, but uh, we speak specifically about what it's like to grow a band from, you know, drawing some local people, you know, 100, maybe 200 people locally, up to a nationally recognized touring act. And we, he managed Whitechapel when that band first started to uh, click. And uh, he's got some awesome insight and strategies of uh, what he did. And this isn't like a playbook. I'm, you know, this isn't like a rubric that you should use in order to grow your band, but he's got some uh, really interesting stories from that perspective. And the insight he shares is really, really cool. So that's what we got next week. It was fun. Okay. Now, please go be safe, right? Special shout out to Lupe Fiasco and his new record, Drogas Wave. It is so good. You need to listen to it. It's available everywhere. And if you do not know Lupe Fiasco, this is a great record for you to jump in on. An amazing hip-hop artist with a very, very rad conceptual record. Okay? It's available everywhere now. Now, goodbye. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Jabberjawmedia.com Shh. Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you new insight into the magical art of songwriting as told by some of the best in the business and also the pioneers and the up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central, and join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.